In case you're wondering, large earth-moving vehicles make the earth vibrate. And that's exactly what's going on outside. So in case you were wondering what that low rumble is that seems to oscillate and roll through the room and then stop and start again, you can just put it in a little box in your head that says it's because there's vehicles outside. And you just set it aside and listen to God's Word. My name is Brian Parks. I'm the senior pastor of Covenant Hope Church. And I want to add my welcome to Mark's welcome to you, especially those of you who are uh, here for the first time, perhaps. Um, One of the most practical ways that Christians in the New Testament experienced fellowship with one another was by visiting one another's homes and eating together. Now, if you come to my house to have dinner or meal, as many of you have, and I hope all of you will at some point in time or another, there are at least two things that you will always do. You'll find the front door and you'll walk in, and you'll sit at my table and you'll eat. You'll walk through the front door and you'll sit at the table and eat. That's Christian fellowship. That part of Christian fellowship is is Christian fellowship in one of its simplest forms. Both of those acts, walking through the front door and sitting at the family table for a meal, are represented in the two ordinances of the church, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now, for now, hold on to those images in your mind, walking through the front door, sitting at the family table for a meal. Now, we're in the middle of a four-week sermon series where we're considering what the Bible says about the church. The Bible tells us everything that we need to know for salvation and in order to live a life of perfect obedience to God. It tells us everything we know. This week, we're talking about the boundaries of the church, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now, some of the things that we've spoken about in this series are what we might call secondary doctrinal issues, secondary. Some example of first order or primary doctrinal issues are, for example, what is the content of the gospel? What's necessary to be saved? Or maybe the Trinity or the authority and inerrancy of the Scripture. Those are primary doctrines. Examples of secondary doctrine might include how the church is governed, the roles in the church, exactly how the ordinances of baptism in the Lord's Supper should be practiced. These are secondary doctrinal issues. True churches, which preach the true gospel, can differ on these secondary issues, yet Consider one another brothers and sisters in the Lord. We pray for one another. We can partner in ministry with one another, ministry especially that takes place outside the bounds of the church. We expect to spend eternity with one another, worshiping Jesus. So we might disagree, for example, with an evangelical Presbyterian church on their practice of baptizing infants, but we consider them a partner in gospel ministry. Because of our convictions about what Scripture teaches on some of these secondary doctrinal issues, though, we gather in separate churches. Still, secondary doctrinal issues are not unimportant doctrines. They are important. We should consider them. 
And churches need to make decisions about how they're going to handle these different issues. We can't necessarily do everything that satisfies everyone and their individual convictions. Churches have to decide. So my goal in this series is for you to better understand what the Bible teaches about the church. We want you to understand how we believe that we're being obedient to Jesus and His Word in the various practices of our church. Let's go to the Lord. Let's ask His help as we look into His Word. Lord Jesus, You told us in Your Word, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. We do love You, Lord because you first loved us when you went to the cross to redeem us from sin and death. Oh Lord, help us better understand your commandments, which reflect your character and accomplish your purposes in our lives for our good and for your glory. Give us soft hearts, Lord, to receive your commands and obey them with joy. In Christ's name, amen. All throughout history, God has established his relationship with his people through covenants. A covenant is a binding relationship based on specific promises and obligations. Marriage, for example, is a covenant that's often given as an example. In order to mark off and signify being included in these covenants with God, he gave signs for his covenants often. So God gave a rainbow to mark the covenant that He made with mankind and the animals in the early chapters of Genesis. He gave circumcision as the sign of the covenant with Abraham and later with the people of Israel, for example. And He's given us signs for the last of His covenants as well, the new covenant. The new covenant is the relationship of grace and mercy that we can have with God through faith in His crucified and resurrected Son, Jesus Christ. Someone enters into that covenant with God and becomes a member of His covenant people. When they hear the gospel, they repent of their sin and they trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sin and the gift of eternal life. The gospel first recounts, of course, the bad news to us. It tells us that we were born rebels just like our ancient parents, Adam and Eve. We were born into sin, and so each one of us sins, every single person on the planet. And because of that sin, we're cut off from God, and in fact, we're due His condemnation and His wrath. But God in His mercy and kindness has made a way where mankind couldn't make their own way. He sent His Son, Jesus, the God-man, who lived a perfect life and who was crucified on the cross, was resurrected from the dead. And now anyone who repents of their sin and trusts in Him can enter into this new covenant with God. If you enter into that covenant with Christ, the physical sign that He's given to mark entering into that covenant is baptism. That's the first of my two points this afternoon, baptism. Baptism and the Lord's Supper will be the main headings for those two points. But let me give you a larger, a little bit longer sentence about baptism that will head up this section. Baptism is the sign of our conversion to Christ and entrance into the church. Baptism is the sign of our conversion to Christ and entrance into the church. 
Jesus was baptized himself before he began his public ministry. He wasn't baptized, of course, to indicate repentance from sin because he was sinless, but he was baptized in order to point to what would be the great goal of his ministry, his death and resurrection. Baptism uniquely signifies entrance into the new covenant because it pictures or depicts Jesus' death and resurrection. The word baptize means to immerse. And so when a person is plunged beneath the water, it's symbolizing Christ being plunged into the floodwaters of God's wrath on the cross. And when a person is raised back up, it's symbolizing Christ's resurrection from the dead into new life by the power of the Holy Spirit. But you know, it doesn't just show that Christ died and was raised. That's not all that baptism is showing. It's also showing what has happened to the person who's being baptized. When a person's baptized, it's showing their union with Christ. They're binding themselves to Him. Their old sinful self dies with Him. That's what's symbolized in going down into the water. And the new spirit-led self is raised with Him. That's what's symbolized when they come up from the water. And in that act of baptism, at least three things are being said. Said by the person who's being baptized. They are confessing, confessing that they are sinners and they deserve God's wrath. They are proclaiming their faith in Christ and His work on the cross. And they're declaring their hope in the eternal life that He gives through the Spirit. So they're confessing sin. They're proclaiming faith. And they're declaring a hope. Jesus ordained baptism as a sign of the new covenant, not only by his own personal example, but also by command. And at this point, I want to have you turn in your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 28. It's the last chapter in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 28, and we're looking at verses 18, 19, and 20. Very famous verses. <clears throat> Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Look there with me as I follow along as I read. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now these were Jesus' last words to the disciples as recorded by Matthew. The apostles took Jesus' command very seriously. And so we see that then in the narrative account of the growth of the church after the day of Pentecost, in the book of Acts, whenever people repented and believed in Christ, the apostles, and then later the disciples of Christ, baptized people, baptized new Christians. But there's one important and very serious mistake that has been made at various times in the history of the church that we need to be clear about. Baptism itself does not save a person. Baptism itself does not save a person. 
Only repentance and faith in Christ saves. Baptism is a public act that declares what's already happened spiritually through faith in Christ. And so, for example, if someone were to commit their life to Christ this very afternoon, which is quite possible, in our midst, repent of their sin, trust in Christ and His death on the cross for them. If, God forbid, they should die before we were able to baptize them, they would be saved. Christ would welcome them into His presence in heaven. The spiritual reality that baptism represents and points to is this. When a person repents and believes in Christ, they are baptized into Christ by the Holy Spirit, and they're born again. The Spirit is what causes them to become alive. With that spiritual reality, they become a part of the universal church, the people of God in all places and at all times. Now, the universal church, of course, is invisible to to us now. We can't see the boundaries of it. We don't know with 100% certainty who all will be there on that day. It will be revealed to us when we stand before Christ. But look with me. Well, you know what? Let me just read this to you from Romans chapter 6. Just listen. Just listen carefully to what I'm reading. Romans 6 verses 3 and 4. Paul says to the Romans, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Paul often speaks about water baptism and baptism into Christ by the Spirit as if they were the same thing because the one represents the other. Water baptism is the public act that announces that spiritual reality of a person's conversion. It's a public initiation for the believer also into the family of faith on the earth now. The universal church is represented on earth now by local churches, just like Covenant Hope Church, just like Redeemer Church of Dubai that planted us, just like United Christian Church of Dubai and lots of other churches in this city that preach the true gospel. So if baptism into Christ by the Spirit is the doorway into the universal church, it makes sense that baptism in water should be the doorway into the local church. That's why baptism is a requirement for membership in the local church. We must obey Jesus and only admit those into membership in the local church who are willing to publicly profess Jesus through water baptism. If someone won't publicly identify as belonging to Jesus through the act that He has commanded, then the local church should not baptize them and publicly identify them as being a part of the people of God. They may very well be, and yet they need to obey the command of Jesus. But a question remains, who has the authority to baptize? Does it lie with the individual? Is baptism something that churches should offer to anyone who says, please baptize me? 
You know, during my days in university student ministry, we would regularly take students to camps or conferences, and it was oftentimes by the ocean. And they would be challenged by God's Word. They would be drawn to Christ by that uh, wonderful, godly environment that they took part in for usually what was an entire week. And then in the group testimony time, someone would stand and share that they were overcome with affection for Christ and they wanted to pledge themselves to Him anew, uh, which is fantastic. Only they would go on to declare that moved by the Spirit, they waded into the ocean and they baptized themselves. Brothers and sisters, that's not baptism. That is not baptism. The normal pattern from Scripture is that the apostles and then churches or church-authorized missionaries baptized new believers. Baptism is an ordinance that requires both a person who has a credible profession of faith who's willing to be baptized and typically a church who affirms their profession and agrees to baptize them, typically. One way of describing baptism is to think of it like putting on the team jersey for being a part of Team Jesus. When you submit to baptism, you're putting on the team jersey. You're identifying yourself with Jesus' people, Jesus' team, so to speak. Now listen, you, you might have the skills and the ability to be a part of that team. In other words, you might have repented and trusted in Christ. But you can't make yourself a part of that local team. The jersey is given to you by the team. When the team gives you the jersey, you're publicly identified as a member of the team. So in the same way, when a church affirms your claim to understand the gospel and to have put your faith in Christ, they should baptize you in obedience to Christ. And with that public profession and that initiation, you enter into membership in the covenant community of the local church which in turn vouches to the best of their knowledge for your membership in the universal church. Now, I was baptized as an infant. I grew up in the United Methodist Church. I learned a lot there. Uh, it was a blessing to me. I later came to Christ at the age of 16 when I was in high school. And then in university, as I grew in my faith, I came to the conclusion as I studied the Bible more and more that the Scripture taught that only believers should be baptized. That's what I came to the conclusion as I read. Still, I didn't step forward to be baptized. I, I just blew it off. I, I, I didn't obey as I understood the scriptures to command. I thought it wasn't any big deal. And then when Hannah, my oldest daughter, came to me at the age of 16 and asked to be baptized, we were living here in the United Arab Emirates. In fact, we were members of the United Christian Church of Dubai. And she came to me and said, Dad, I'm a believer. I want to be baptized. I directed her to the church leaders at UCCD. And they affirmed her profession. And then they asked me if I wanted to baptize her, to help baptize her, right down there at the bottom of those stairs outside this building. I was deeply convicted. My daughter was publicly claiming Christ in baptism while I had shrugged it off as being unnecessary. So when Hannah got in the baptismal, so did I. But, and before I helped to baptize her, 
I gave my testimony of faith in Christ and the pastors of UCCD baptized me. So I was baptized here in Dubai in 2006 in that baptismal outside this building. 2006, better to obey Jesus late than never, I say. What about you? Have you understood the true gospel? Have you trusted in Christ? To have the new life that he offers to be joined with the universal family of God? Think of the picture that baptism portrays. Washed of your sin. Risen to new life in Christ. As long as you have breath, friend, that offer stands for you. But don't wait. Don't put it off. You don't know what tomorrow holds. And it's Christ who draws people to himself. If you sense your need for him, even right now, turn to him now. Put your trust and faith in him. And then come and declare your faith in Christ publicly. Let us affirm your newfound faith. Become someone who testifies to Christ in the waters of baptism. You know, there's many more questions that you may have about baptism and the church. We're going to be holding a prayer meeting after this service, maybe 15 or 20 minutes after we end the service. And at the beginning of that service, I'm going to take some questions uh, on this, these topics of baptism and the Lord's Supper. If you'd like to stick around and ask a question, have it clarified, I'd love to talk to you then. Or if you'd like to reach out to me at any other time. But we need to press on to consider the second ordinance that bounds the local church. And that's the Lord's Supper. If baptism is the door into the local church, the Lord's Supper is the regular family meal at the table that Christ has set for us. And so here's what you could write down as the title of the second point. The Lord's Supper is the sign of our relationship with Christ and membership in the church. The Lord's Supper is the sign of our relationship with Christ and our membership in the local church. Now, when God rescued the Israelites from Egypt, He commanded them to celebrate a meal on the eve of their rescue. It was called the Passover meal. Every Israelite family was to sacrifice a lamb, a perfect lamb, and that very night, the angel of the Lord would come and cause the death of the firstborn of every Egyptian family. But the Israelites had to obey, who had obeyed, would have had their houses passed over. Why? Because they would have sacrificed that lamb and they would have brushed the blood on the doorposts of their homes. And so the angel of the Lord passed over those homes where there was blood brushed on the doorposts. And so the next day, they escaped Egypt by the millions. Every year, Egypt was to celebrate that Passover meal. And our reading just earlier in the service recounted how the Passover meal was to be exclusive to the Israelites. 1,400 years later, 1,400 years later, Jesus was crucified on the evening before the Passover. It was no coincidence. Before he went to the cross, he celebrated that meal with his disciples. Turn with me to Luke chapter 22 in your Bibles. Luke 22, verses 14 through 20. 
Luke 22, 14 through 20. Beginning with verse 14, follow along with me. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus was making the connection between his coming sacrifice on the cross and the lambs that were sacrificed at the original Passover hundreds of years before. The lamb's blood on the doorposts protected the Israelites from God's wrath at the original Passover, and the lamb's bodies provided the meal that sustained the Israelites on their journey of escape. The bread and the wine in the Passover meal depict Jesus' death as a sacrifice for our salvation. Jesus commanded this meal, not the Passover, to be done by Christians, His followers, His disciples, in remembrance of Him. That's what He says here in this passage, do this in remembrance of Me. Now, unlike baptism that should take place once when a person becomes a Christian, Scripture clearly teaches that the Lord's Supper is an ordinance that churches take part in regularly. If baptism is the front door to the household of God, the local church, the Lord's Supper is the family meal that happens regularly and binds us together and represents our binding relationship with Christ as well, of course. There are at least three things that the Lord's Supper represents and pictures. First of all, it represents our union with Christ, our Savior and Lord. He shared that meal of bread and wine with His disciples, and as His disciples today, we share it with Him as well. Spiritually, Christ, though He's not here in the body, dwells in us through the Holy Spirit. This is the vertical dimension of the Lord's Supper. It's about our relationship with Christ together. Secondly, the Lord's Supper represents the unity of the church. Both the universal church, but also the visible church that we can see today. The churches that we can see the boundaries of. Our unity as a local church. So the members of Covenant Hope Church have covenanted together to live out their lives together for Christ, watching over one another's lives, helping each other obey Christ in everything. And the Lord's Supper that we regularly take together represents, well, we could even say it makes us one body, one covenanting local church. Paul says to the Corinthian church, In his first letter to them in chapter 10, verse 17, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. 
for we all partake of the one bread. So the Lord's Supper, in effect, holds us together. The many partaking in the one bread become one. This is the horizontal dimension of this meal, the Lord's Supper. And this is why we have members of the church stand and read the church covenant together before we take the Lord's Supper. We're reaffirming our covenant in words before we reaffirm our covenant in the symbolic meal. But thirdly, the Lord's Supper shows us something else as well. The Lord's Supper separates the church from the world. It separates the church from the world. It draws a clear, bright line between the church and the world, those who are Christians and those who are not. It's a meal only for those who have repented of their sin and trusted in Christ. But true Christians live lives of continual repentance for their sin. So anyone who takes the Lord's Supper must be someone who is currently repenting of sin, not simply looking back to some pledge of repentance in the past. They must be walking with Jesus. The meal represents being set apart from the world. It doesn't mean that the people in the church are better than anyone in the world. We're sinners. We make no bones about that, those of us who are Christians. But we're different because we've given our lives to Christ, and we're living for Him together, unlike the world. And that is all because of what Christ has done to us and what He's done for us. We claim no credit for ourselves. Now, we learn a lot about how the Lord's Supper should not be practiced in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Turn with me if you would there, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. First Corinthians chapter 11 and we're beginning with verse 17. Now the Corinthian church, uh, before I read this you should know the Corinthian church was a divided church. Uh, there was rivalry, there was dissension, there was abundant competition among the members. And how they came to the Lord's Supper reflected that. They viewed it as an individual thing and not a corporate meal. And so follow along and listen to what Paul says to them. He's not happy. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I command you in this? No, I will not. Well, you can see that Paul's not happy with them and the way they're uh, taking part in what they consider to be the Lord's Supper. He says it's not actually the Lord's Supper because they're not doing it properly. The Lord's Supper is not like the biscuits at the back of our church room here sitting on the welcome table. 
set out for anyone to get any time they want. It must be taken together, and there must be unity in the body in the local church. We can conclude that this meal is for the whole church. This letter that Paul wrote was to the whole Corinthian church. It wasn't just written to a small group or to the group of elders in the church. It was supposed to have been read to all of them. And so the meal, the Lord's Supper, is not for portions of the church to be taken separately. So for this reason, the Lord's Supper should not be taken in small groups. There are only they're only a portion of the church, not the whole covenanted body. That's, what, that's part of what Paul is criticizing here. It's also not an individual ordinance. So, for example, on occasion, someone has come to me after our Lord's Supper service, after the service is completely over, and they've said to me, look, I, I missed the chance to take the bread and the juice when it passed me, and so I want to take it now. And I just, as kindly as I can and respectfully as I can, say, no, <laughs> you can't have it now. That's not the way it functions. It's okay. If you're trusting in Christ, if you're born again, then you can come back to our next Lord's Supper service and take it then. We take it together. And Paul goes on farther in chapter 11 after he's recounted Jesus' words to the apostles, and he goes on to explain that there are very serious spiritual and temporal consequences for not handling the Lord's Supper rightly. So look down with me at verses 27 through 34. So skip down to 27, still in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, and follow along. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged." But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will be, not be for judgment. And about the other things, I will give directions when I come. Paul is saying that there is a way to take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. And that makes whoever takes it in that way guilty of sinning against the Lord. There's condemnation and judgment for those who take the Lord's Supper unworthily. People might even become weak or ill or even die as a result, Paul says. He says it's actually happened in their midst. Now, Paul continues... In verse 28, we read it aloud to explain that the way to avoid taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner is to examine yourself and do something he calls discerning the body. This is kind of a mysterious phrase. It's a bit difficult. But first, we can say what taking the Lord's Supper is in an unworthy manner is not. What does it not mean? 
Well, it doesn't mean that you may not have any sin in your life if you want to come to the Lord's Supper table. That's not what it means. No, all Christians sin. We still have a sinful nature until Jesus comes back. No one is worthy or has earned the right to receive forgiveness from Christ or take the Lord's Supper. No one's earned it. We all stand at the table just like we stand at the foot of the cross. Undeserving. But it's only undeserving people who can take the Lord's Supper. In that sense, we're all unworthy, if you want to call it that. But here Paul is talking about Christians who are refusing to repent of known sin in their lives. So, for example, perhaps someone's addicted to pornography and they're refusing to fight against that sin. Or perhaps someone is treating their employees unethically. and They know it's sin, but they refuse to repent and to begin to treat their employees fairly. Perhaps someone is in an ongoing unresolved conflict with a friend or with their spouse, and they're making no effort to resolve it, no self-reflection to understand if they've sinned against the other in the conflict. These and many others are possible reasons for a sin, for a Christian, to not take the Lord's Supper until they take steps to actively repent. Now let's tackle this phrase, discern the body. To discern the body means both to recognize that the bread and the wine represent Christ's broken body and shed blood, and to have faith in that for your salvation. But I think that there's also a horizontal dimension to discerning the body. Given that Paul's main criticism of the Corinthians is that they're refusing to repent of sinful divisions among themselves. As a church, they were called God's body, Christ's body as well. They need to discern Christ's body in the meal by faith. And they need to discern that their local church is Christ's body as well and shouldn't be divided at the table or in any other aspect of life. So it has to do with understanding what the bread and the wine represent and having faith in what Christ has done. And it also means discerning the necessary unity of the body, which is the local church. Neither of which they were recognizing. Now, because of the seriousness of these violations of the Lord's Supper, we as a church, we do something called fencing the table every time we serve the Lord's Supper. Now, I don't call it fencing the table every time I do that, but that's what I'm doing. So, in effect, what I'm doing when I speak to you about the Lord's Supper before we distribute it is I'm erecting a fence around the table to only let in those who should take the meal. We want to keep out those who should not take the meal. Now, I want you to note that for Christians, the bad things that he's speaking about in this passage, this applies to them as well for Christians. These bad things that might happen to them would not represent eternal condemnation. 
but simply disciplining from the Lord. If we look at verse 32, for example, Paul, speaking to the Christians of the Corinthian church, explains this disciplining is not the same as being condemned along with the world. I hope you see that. Still, when we erect a fence around the table, it is a merciful thing that we're barring people from the table who shouldn't take it, given that there are serious consequences for it. Those of you who are parents wouldn't let your children run out into the street and get hit by a car. You, you'd put a fence up if you had to, to keep them out of that. And so we do that as well with the Lord's Supper. The first thing that we do when we fence the table is we explain what the table means. We explain that the bread and the wine point to the sacrifice of Christ on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins, and that this sacrifice is binding us together as a local church who have covenanted together. The second thing that we do when we fence the table is we remind people that this meal is only for Christians. And because the church has the authority to affirm a Christian's profession of faith. We ask that people who take the supper be Christians who have been baptized and are members of a church. And this reduces the chances that a person who is self-deceived about their faith might take the Lord's Supper and suffer for it. We allow people who are not members to take the Lord's Supper with us. It's what has sometimes been called visiting communion, and we do that because there's evidence that Paul was allowed to take the Lord's Supper with churches as he traveled around and visited them. He wasn't, he wasn't a covenanting member of that church, but he evidently took the Lord's Supper with them. But we ask that non-members be baptized members of another church preaching the same gospel or maybe simply in transition between membership in one church and membership in another. The third thing that we do when we erect this fence around the Lord's Supper is we encourage everyone to examine themselves and take the supper in a worthy manner. We want them to discern by faith the body of Christ, both Christ's broken body on the cross and His body, the unity of the local church. And this is why we remind everyone during the week and at the beginning of the service where we'll be taking the Lord's Supper together at the end. We want people to have examined themselves. We want them to be forewarned that we're taking the Lord's Supper together. We want them to, to discern the body of Christ. We want those of you who might be caught up in conflict with someone in your life to go and reconcile with them before you take the Lord's Supper. We want you to consider whether there's any unrepentant sin in your life at all, for that matter. Only then should you take the Lord's Supper. Now, how often should the church take the Lord's Supper? Well, the answer is often. Beyond that, Christians throughout the centuries have disagreed about when to take the Lord's Supper. Some think that the Scriptures indicate that it should be taken every week when we gather as a church. Others think every time the church gathers, the Lord's Supper should be taken. So in weeks when we might gather multiple times, we should take the Lord's Supper multiple times. 
Others don't see a clear command in Scripture about the frequency of the Lord's Supper, and so they maybe take it once a month or more. This is our practice, to take it once a month. We began with this practice when we founded the church two and a half years ago, partially because that was the practice of the church that planted us, Redeemer Church of Dubai. And since we started the church, the elders discussed it, and after praying, we decided to begin taking the Lord's Supper additionally when we meet for members' meetings. And so that means that we take the supper roughly 30% of the 52 weeks in the year. (laughs) do Do the math for you. It's possible that we would reconsider that in the future as elders. The Lord's Supper has always been an integral practice of all Christian churches. Not just evangelical churches, but all Christian churches. Historically, true, the true churches of the Lord Jesus have been said to have two distinguishing marks. The right preaching of the Word of God and the right administration of the ordinances. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Some of you who are from a Roman Catholic background, or maybe you are Roman Catholic and you're visiting here today to learn about evangelical Christianity, you might know that there are actually seven ordinances or sacraments according to the Roman Catholic Church. But we find only precedence and command for the two in Scripture, and so those are the ones that we obey. When we don't observe Jesus' ordinance ordinances for the church as He's commanded them in Scripture, we're not being obedient to Jesus. Remember, Scripture tells us all that we need to know for salvation and all that we need to know in order to be perfectly obedient to Him. Jesus commanded us to baptize and to take the Lord's Supper. One is the door into the local church. The other is the renewing family meal of the local church. And they provide the boundaries that mark out a church. Jesus gave them to us for a reason. Both of them are beautiful pictures of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Baptism shows a person dying with Christ and being raised to new life. And the Lord's Supper shows us communing with Christ, being sustained by Him. And it renews our covenanted life together as a church until He returns. When a church practices these ordinances rightly, as Scripture tells us to, we not only are hearing the gospel in the preaching but we see the gospel in the ordinances. You know, even churches that have long ago, long, long ago, abandoned the true gospel, oftentimes are still churches that baptize and take the Lord's Supper. Isn't it amazing? Even there, they are showing forth pictures of the gospel that they no longer believe. But faithful churches... Faithful churches who believe the gospel and therefore preach the gospel and show the gospel in the ordinances. Praise God for those churches. We want to be a church like that. That's our goal together, to be faithful and to obey Christ together until He returns. 
Let's go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the good news of Jesus Christ, that sinners like us who have no way of reconciling ourselves with you have had extended to us your grace and your mercy through Jesus. Praise you for this mercy, for this grace, unmerited, unearned, unsought for. Lord, we praise you that the gospel of Jesus Christ is depicted in both baptism and the Lord's Supper. And we pray, Father, that you would help us as a church to be faithful as we practice them. And when we practice them, Lord, we pray that people, both we who trust in you, would see the gospel, and also those who may not know you would see the gospel as well. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.